Ah, the bank holiday weekend and plenty going on on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. You have done it. You've nailed it. I now love bats. But let's bust a quick a couple of myths. Do they fly into your hair? No, they use echolocation so they can map their world around them. They don't want to be in your hair. What we have in office at the moment, and it remains the case even though we now have a new prime minister, is that is, is a bunch of wreckers, basically. They, they are people who have this almost fanatical commitment to an abstraction they call the market. Everything else must be torn apart in order to permit maximum market freedom. Well, look, the live crib has been great and it's been there for a long time. But I just thought this year we would try something different and give the children a different new experience at the mansion house. And as it's the start of our bank holiday weekend, here's Oliver Callan's view of a meeting between Britain's King Charles and the new PM. The Prime Minister, sir, the Right Honourable Rishi Sunak. Good day, Your Majesty. Another one, dear, oh dear. Anyway, congratulations on being this month's PM. <laughs> this, is a, this is just a little joke, you see. Yes, I, I recognised it was humour by the inflection of your speech pattern. Oh, goodness, you lot get progressively duller, don't you? It is my great privilege yeah, and... Yes, I heard something about your great privilege. Rishi Rich, the red top, called you. Oh, right. Was it the son? That's right. Harry, my red top son. No, what I you meant... You said you were obscenely wealthy and something about your family avoiding uh, taxes. Well, well what, what, what I... What I... I wouldn't worry about it either. It seems you've plenty in common and that we both have plenty. But I have more, though, just to make that clear. I do my best to give back, sir. Well, if that's everything... Oh, you, you don't want to hear my economic plans? Well, I... I I did have a question about austerity, yes. What is it? Exactly. What is it, this austerity? (laughs) Honestly, I have no idea myself. They didn't cover it in Oxford, so... Or Goldman Sachs. I I suppose we'll find out. Or rather, everyone else will. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, sir. Yeah, I feel like I would have gotten on better with Boris. Shame I never got the chance to do this with him. Maybe next month. Uh, Who knows? I'm still here, sir. Yes, 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 of course you are. Well done. You're already doing better than the letters. Right. Bully for you, Prime Minister. From Callan's Kicks. And in the afternoon, Joe was in White's Hotel in Wexford for a funny Friday. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to White's Hotel here in Wexford Town for Funny Friday. <laughs> Just to, just to uh, reassure everybody at home, we've employed security so far. We've confiscated eight cans of Heinz soup, tomato soup, four cans of Aldi mushroom soup, right? And we've... Doc, Doc. Yeah, funny, there was a guy, you know the lovely beach here in Wexford? There was a guy walking along the beach one day and he saw this bottle and he kicked it and the genie came out of the bottle and said, I can give you three wishes. What would you like first? He said, being a paddy, I said, I'd like a never-ending never pint of Guinness. Ah, lovely, yeah, lovely. The genie appeared, the Guinness appeared, he drank it, it filled up again. Jeez, that's great. She said, you two more wishes. What would you like? She two more of them. Yeah, McNall Horn. Yeah, there's a... But I told me, he said, uh, said, somebody stole his wife's credit card, but he wouldn't report it missing. Because whoever stole the card was spending less than she was. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be the phone she can. 
Now you see. Anyway, it's not only 54 shoplifting days to Christmas. <laughs> Fella said to me, what do you want for Christmas? He said, I want uh, something with diamonds. So he bought her a pack of cards. Uh. <laughs> Bring me somewhere expensive. <laughs> Bring somewhere, yeah, at the, the petrol station. <laughs> Doug Savage on Live Lines Funny Friday. And on the news at one, the cancelling of the traditional live crib in Dublin city centre. The Lord Mayor of Dublin has confirmed plans to drop the live animal crib at the city's mansion house this year, which has been part of Christmas celebrations in the city centre for almost 30 years. The Irish Farmers Association, which supplies the animals for the live crib, has expressed its disappointment over the move. We'll speak to the Lord Mayor and Green Party Councillor Caroline Conroy presently. But first, here's the President of the IFA, Tim Cullinan. Obviously, I'm very disappointed and... uh... You know, it's something we have been doing now since the 1990s is, you know, I think engaging, number one, with the people of Dublin. And look, I've seen this over the last number of years. I've launched this crib myself and uh, done the joy that it brings to young children each year you know, at that launch and goes on at late December. And you know, I think it's very important, you know, the engagement from Irish agriculture or from IFA ourselves, with, in particular with the children of Dublin, that may never, you know, would, would not be used to seeing animals. But the fact that they are able to interact with the animals, I think that's very, very important. And look, I'd have to say, I've offered already this morning to, to meet with the Lord Mayor and discuss this, you know, because um, I'm just shocked, really, at, at this decision by the current Lord Mayor. I, I just actually, I just learned about it this morning myself. I was out of the country yesterday and um, I just got a message on my phone this morning. And as I say, you know, I, I was amazed and shocked. And uh, it's something, as I say, we have been doing for a long number of years now. And, uh, uh, you know, we want to continue it. And look, I'd have to say as well, if this current Lord Mayor has an issue with live animals, and I believe this morning, you know, the Lord Mayor was using the excuse of COVID, and I've launched this uh, crib over the last two years during COVID. And, you know, we were able to facilitate the people during COVID. And uh, I, I don't believe that there, there is a COVID issue there at the moment. So, look, what I want to do is, so hopefully we can resolve this issue. I'm willing today to sit down with the Lord Mayor and see, can we find a way around this? Tim Cullinan of the IFA. Then Brian spoke to Dublin Lord Mayor Caroline Conroy. So the uh, the IFA, Tim Cullinan, says he's shocked at this decision. I imagine there'll be very many parents and their children uh, surprised and disappointed that this decision has been taken. How and why did you did you come to this decision? Well, look, the live crib has been great and it's been there for a long time. And um, it's been looked after really well by the IFA and the DSPCA. Um, but I just thought this year we would try something different and give the children a different and their families a different new experience at the mansion house. Something that, you know, um, would be more interactive. They would feel more included, that we could have choirs out in the fourth court, that we could have, say, like a sleigh that they could sit up and get photos on. We'd have a post box and they could post their Santa's letters. Something just a bit more inclusive and a bit more interactive. And that's why um, I uh, came up with this plan for this year uh, on on the Mansion House Four Court. So just to be clear, and this it, is, sorry, Gloria Mary, this is your plan. Um, it, it has, it, has it been signed off on by the council? Well, it was um, a plan that I came up with just because the last couple of years with the COVID, 
um, that the kids could only look through the screen at the animals and there was no interaction there. And it was very much look in, go, and there was nothing else there. I brought it to protocol yesterday morning and all the councillors were fully behind this. So um, sorry, this is the protocol. Not, this is the protocol committee. Protocol is that right? Meeting. Yeah, yeah. And was it, sorry, was it was it listed was it listed as an agenda item on for that meeting? It, it was listed under AOB, and they were contacted beforehand for the meeting um, that it was coming up on the agenda. So but the whole idea behind this is just to bring a bit more fun, excitement, interaction, try something different. You know, look at the mansion house. It was built back in 1710. The Dublin Corporation bought it in 1715. Mm. And I would love to just set that scene of a winter wonderland around Christmas, have the choirs there, have um, other people being able to come in stand in in the actual setup and take photos and have a bit more fun and Christmassy feel about the whole uh, experience at the Mansion House. It's just that this is something which has been running, as we said, for almost 30 years. It's been hugely popular. People will know if they travel up or down Dawson Street uh, at this time of the year that there are queues of, of parents and their children to go into the live crib. Very many of those children would have very little opportunity to see live animals at, at any other time of the year. So it was something that uh, was enormously popular and you seem to have taken this decision more or less entirely off your own bat. Well, no, it wasn't. It was based on the fact that they can only look through a window at the animals, so it's not very interactive. But would that and still be the case? Sorry, would that still be the case now that the pandemic is is, is behind us? Well, even if it is is there, even if uh, COVID isn't there, the experience is to walk in one end of the shed have a look at the animals and then walk out the other door. And I just feel that we need something a bit just, more. They did seem to uh, enjoy doing it. That, that's all I'm saying to you. Uh, you know, you, yeah, maybe it and, didn't and do much for you, but, but for very many others, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. Yes, and I actually acknowledge that it was a good experience, but we want to try something new, something that will have inclusivity for all people and that we would uh, have a more interactive element to it and try it so out. What, um, what wasn't inclusive about the crib? Well, it was that it, you were looking through a window at the animals. So this was, you were sitting up on the sleigh that you could post your letters to Santa in a, a letterbox that um, it, the setting would be uh, set back to 1715, the kind of Christmas card, postcard look to the scene and that would add a bit more festivity and excitement to the area. So that's that's the whole setting behind it. It's so, it's so, about bringing more people in and having a fun experience around Christmas time at, at the Mansion House. So that's all the um, the um, motivation yeah. behind it. So is. are it's all not these about, okay? But are all these plans you're talking about are they all ready to go? Have you been putting all this in place? No, there's still there's still um, still ongoing uh, plans being put in place at the minute, and we're working on um, different elements of it. And you know what I would say is maybe um, if or you want to come down when we have it set up that they come and have a look at what we're doing, and um, they can yeah. interview the people. Well, we'd be delighted. We'd I, be delighted to do yeah. that. But this is about this is about the children who've enjoyed what was there for so many years. I mean, this has gone gone <laughs> gone on for so long now that uh, uh, you know n not only are the IFA shocked at this, colleagues of yours on the council uh, are are calling for the the plan to be reversed. They're 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 saying actually that you don't have sign-off on this from the councillors? 
Well, I had the protocol. We were at the protocol meeting on yesterday, and all the councillors are um, backing this. So I don't know where the other councillors are coming from, but my idea behind this is that it's going to be fun. It's going to be interactive. It's going to bring a bit of more excitement. It's going to bring that Christmas look that we want on Dawson Street. It's going to be inclusive. It's going mm. to be um, on for longer uh, during the day and the evening. And it will have that real Christmas wonderland feel. And it ties in great with the mm. winter uh, lights festival and you don't, that Dublin City Council and you don't will have, any, have. You don't have any plan for any live animals, even as part of that? No, no, because I don't know if you know the space out in the front of the mansion. I do. It's quite tight. Yeah, it's quite tight. So to have all of that interactive stuff, um, it just wouldn't, you couldn't fit it all in. There'd be all no right. room for people then. The decision stands. That's what you're telling us. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I think if give it a go, see how it goes. Um, I, I think it will be fun and interactive mm. and children just love being around that Christmas scene and right. when, getting when, involved. When and, if you, when and if you actually produce your plans, which you have, you've told us you haven't uh, yeah, well, got underway yet. They're not, they're, they're not finalised and I'd like to leave a bit have of surprise even? element right. to it as well, you know. Caroline Conroy from the News at One with Brian Dobson. And on Morning Ireland, remembering Savita Halepanavar 10 years after her death. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the death of Savita Halepanavar. Her death in University Hospital Galway came a week after she was admitted with complications relating to her pregnancy. During that time, her requests for a termination were refused due to the laws that were in place at the time. When her story emerged, it made national and international news and sparked a major backlash. Ultimately, Ireland changed the constitution and the laws on abortion. Our Western correspondent Pat McGrath has been looking back at the events from late 2012 and hearing about the impact they had on those who knew Savita Halapanover in her adopted city of Galway. This is 148 2011. Ooh, yeah. Mridla Vasepoli and Moshumi Mandel are two members of Galway's tight knit Indian community. And that's me and her. Friends of Savita Halapanover, they've been remembering the time they spent with her and the bonds they forged. Uh, you see the picture which was in the papers. That's the sp- big smile and full of life. Whatever I know, I always used to look at her and think like, how can a person be so happy all the time? Like she used to bring that positive energy in the room. Listening to their recollections, it's clear the 31-year-old left a deep footprint in the lives of those who knew her. Yeah, we keep thinking of her. Certain times like, what would she say now? She would have seen this, she would have laughed at that person or she would have loved that Small little things, life things. Savita Halapanavar's short life had a far-reaching impact both locally and nationally. She was 17 weeks pregnant with her first child when she presented with complications at University Hospital Galway on Sunday the 21st of October 2012. While a fetal heartbeat was detected the following morning, doctors determined the pregnancy was not viable. But with no real and substantial threat to her life at that time, her requests for a termination of pregnancy were refused. Every time they did a scan or, you know, they did a heartbeat check, her heart, you know, broke basically. She, she was in terrible pain. Her husband, Praveen Halapanavar, recalled the couple's experience in a 2013 interview with RTE's Primetime. 
And then we came back to the ward and the gynec came after some time and said, um, you know, that, um, sorry, the fetus is still alive, so we can't do anything. After a serious deterioration in her condition, Savita Halapanavar died on the 28th of October 2012. Her death focused attention once more on Ireland's abortion laws. We're all out here tonight because we don't want to see another woman die. And we think that the women in Ireland and the people in Ireland deserve better, that we can do better. The jury at the inquest into Mrs Halapanavar's death delivered a unanimous verdict of medical misadventure. Two subsequent inquiries, one carried out for the HSE, the other by the Health Information and Quality Authority, identified multiple shortcomings in the care provided to her. The investigation found that there were failings in terms of the most basic and fundamental provision of care for her, and that resulted as well in the non-detection of clinical deterioration and the, the detection as well of a developing sepsis which, which obviously resulted uh, in her death. In all, 33 recommendations were made on foot of reports in the aftermath of the tragedy, many focusing on improvements to maternity care. And the debate that followed Savita Halapanava's death ultimately contributed to constitutional change with the repeal of the Eighth Amendment in May 2018. I just think, us migrants, we come here for a better life and we come here to work and to build better lives than what we have at home. We leave our families, we leave our friends, and none of us expect to come here and die. And she didn't either. So I voted for yes for her. In Galway today, those who were close to her recognised the unwitting impact she had. But their overriding memories are of someone who lit up every room she walked into, a person who they say brought joy and laughter, a friend they'll never forget. She lives as Savita, the one I know, and the one who had all the fun. And, you know, the day Praveen left with her body to India, me and another friend, Amrit, we had to vacate the house. And we went to pack her bag, her clothes for charity. All bags, piles and piles of bags. All her dreams, all her wishes. As you ask, like, like 10 years now, I still can see her smile. I can still feel her presence. Like, there's always a moment like, where, where we will be remembering her. She's always there with us. We, there's like, you say Savita, and we, we really feel that she's still with us, her presence. Pat McGrath's report marking the 10th anniversary of the death of Savita Halapanavar for Morning Ireland. And on Today with Claire Byrne, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's decision not to attend COP. The Guardian's George Monbiot spoke to Claire. Now, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been accused of a failure of leadership after it was announced that he will not attend the COP27 climate summit in Egypt next month. Downing Street said the Prime Minister had other pressing domestic commitments. Opposition parties and environmental groups said the decision suggested the government was not taking the climate crisis seriously enough. Well, to talk more about this, I'm joined on the line by author and Guardian columnist George George Monbiot. Good morning, George. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. It's the new Environment Minister, Therese Coffey, and I know you're not a fan of Therese Coffey, but she did say this morning that the COP meeting in Egypt isn't that important. Do you think that the British Prime Minister should be there? Yeah, he should definitely be there. And I think his decision not to go there, as well as his decision, incidentally, to appoint Therese Coffey as 
Environment Secretary shows a complete lack of seriousness on this issue. Um, sure, he has other things to attend to, the crises caused by his own government or um, previous iterations of his own government, but this is the biggest crisis of all. In fact, it's a much bigger crisis than humanity has ever faced before because we're talking about the potential collapse of the habitable planet. And while I don't hold out a great deal of hope at COP27, um, this reduces the hope even further. Mm-hmm. Because um, it, it had been said that, you know, d- people who have defended this decision for Rishi Sunak not to go, that it matters more what's happening at home rather than him attending a conference in Egypt. I mean, why is it important for the British Prime Minister to be there? We have some of the biggest historical emissions in the world. So we have this huge legacy of of climate damage that we've done, which is now being felt by many other nations who have got a far smaller legacy. We we have a massive moral responsibility to be involved in this and to press for the swiftest and most effective possible climate measures in um, preventing the possibility of full climate breakdown. And what about uh, Downing Street's reassurances about the UK's commitment to the climate crisis? Do you think that they are entitled to make those points while saying we will not attend COP27? Words are cheap. Actions are almost absent at the moment. So his, his presence there is important because it's symbolic. Well, it is symbolic, but it's he also, in common with all world leaders, should be closely involved in the most important of all global issues. And uh, what tends to happen at these conferences, and certainly happened at COP26, which the UK hosted in Glasgow last year, was um, that it's a handful of, of big, powerful nations get together and conduct a stitch up behind closed doors. And the result is that the weaker nations, uh, often those right on the front line of climate disaster, get cut out. Now, obviously, that shouldn't happen. And there is an argument to say that if the British don't turn up, well, that's one less powerful nation stitching up the less powerful nation. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be that way. There should be a global collaboration between all governments to prevent this catastrophe. And when governments show they don't even have the commitment to turn up, then the prospects of that collaboration become even feebler than they were before. It goes beyond that, though, doesn't it? Because if we go back to Liz Truss's short term in office, and I don't quite understand why this happened, but she told Britain's King Charles not to go to COP27. I see John Kerry, the US special envoy for for climate, is saying that it would be useful for him to be there. do, Do you know why Liz Truss made that request of King Charles? I don't, but what we have in office at the moment, and it remains the case, even though we now have a new prime minister whom we didn't elect either, is is that is is a bunch of wreckers. Basically, they they are people who have this almost fanatical commitment to an abstraction they call the market. Everything else must be torn apart in order to permit maximum market freedom, and. And this sort of market freedom basically means freedom for the very rich to do whatever they want. 
democracy must be torn apart. Um, our public services must be torn apart. The welfare state must be torn apart. Even our financial stability must be torn apart to serve this God called the market. And the thing which uh, is deemed most to interfere with the workings of the God's invisible hand is environmental action. So that is always the first on the chopping block. The Guardian's George Mambio from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning for the weekend that's in it, Brendan Courtney was talking to grandnephew of Dracula writer Bram Stoker, Dacre Stoker. The book is actually celebrating its 125th anniversary, is that correct? It is. I mean, can you imagine, 125 years ago, Bram published this book and, and it's still it's sort of a gift that keeps on giving. People are still looking into it, trying to figure out what inspired Bram, how much of his Irishness came out in the story. How did he figure out how to write about it? Transylvania was never going there. So there's still lots of things to learn about the story, and it keeps on being horrifying, obviously, in this Halloween season, most appropriate. You both have incredible names, Bram Stoker and Dacre Stoker. I mean, they're absolutely theatrically brilliant names. But tell me exactly how you are related to Bram Stoker. So Bram was one of seven children, Mm -hmm. and I am the great-grandson of Bram's youngest brother, George. So that makes me the great-grand-nephew. And actually, Dacre was in the family name. Uh, Bram's father had a brother who named a child of his, Dacre, Henry Hugh Gordon Dacre Stoker, who was actually a famous submariner in World War I, if you can believe it. So uh, we come by all these names honestly, and it certainly adds color to the season. You, the, the, the Stoker spread from Ireland to the UK and to Canada and to America. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. George's son... Thomas came to uh, came to Canada, and that's how our branch of the family started. He had his, his other brother, uh, Richard, actually went to British Columbia. So uh, we call them the bookends of North America, and they started spreading throughout all of North America. And, and you live in South Carolina now, is that correct? I do. I, I moved from Canada to sort of avoid the, the weather, and I married a, a southerner, and she wasn't too pleased with the weather in Canada. So I now live in South Carolina. I love it, but I also love coming back to visit Ireland. I love the, the cool fall and the weather that you folks and the colours in the trees too. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so you're in Ireland at the moment, obviously, because you're getting ready for to, to, to partake in, in your show on Sunday. But uh, give us a little bit of your background because you had a kind of a, a relatively ordinary upbringing in Canada. Relatively ordinary. I mean, you know, the whole Dracula thing was didn't really hit my family until I was in the university and started doing the research. But I was very, very busy. And in a, a funny thing, in a, in a, in a way, interesting uh, and similar to Brand. He was an athlete, a champion athlete at Trinity College. And I actually made the Canadian Olympic team in the, in the sport of modern pentathlon back in the 80s. And then I became an Olympic coach in 1988 for Canada. So Dracula took a backseat for a number of years. But now the roles are reversed. I'm back at, and have been for the last... 15 years researching and writing all about Bram's life. And of course, I'm lucky enough to have co-authored two international bestsellers, a prequel and a sequel to Dracula that have done very well. And keep, you know, it keeps, it's a wonderful way to sort of honor Bram's literary legacy by using his notes, some of his research methods to keep his story alive. Take me back a step. So you're, you're an Olympian and you end up coaching at the Olympics for Canada. So you're, you're very driven, obviously. So, but you didn't, when did you actually read Bram Stoker's Dracula? As you said, university. So it was later yeah. on. Yeah. It was later on. I did perhaps you know, look through it when I was about 12 or 13. Yeah. My father actually pulled a first edition of Dracula 
off of the bookcase, and it was, you know, funnily enough, signed by Bram to his mother. So this was wow. You know, this was a, a real, yeah, masterpiece, iconic piece. We now loan this to different museums and and uh, you know, places that are putting on uh, expositions about Bram and the book because it is it, it's it, it's it's our Bible, so to speak. But I didn't read that one uh, earnestly. I didn't read Chaucer University and really got to understand the genius behind this incredible novel, this multi-layered story um, that shines a light you know, on some of, the, some of the sensitivities that Bram recognized at the end of the 1800s, some of the issues of the world that the, the people were facing. So, uh, yeah, I've made, I've made a, a recently a career of it, but I didn't, yeah. didn't start with it too early, though. Dacre Stoker talking to Brendan Courtney in the morning. And on today with Claire Byrne, the dangers of high blood pressure and its effect on the body. Dr. Paddy Barrett, a preventative cardiologist at Blackrock Clinic, was talking to Claire. So will we start about the causes then? What what do people in your profession know about the causes of, of high blood pressure? So it's interesting that we start with that question because after decades of research, we actually have not a huge amount of insight as to what really causes it with high confidence, mm-hmm. um, which might sound surprising as... Uh, investigations into the risk factor that kills the most people worldwide. There's lots of theories, um, but we know with very high confidence the things that are associated with it. Um, we know that over 45, over 50% of adults over 45 years of age have high blood pressure, um, and we know there are strong correlations with reductions in physical activity or increases in obesity, for example. Um, so a lot of these things are linked together. So being overweight, having a higher BMI or waist circumference? Uh, so again, I think we can get into the specifics. Typically, it's going to be increased BMI there's an association with, but the increased waist circumference is a more accurate indicator because it points to what's called visceral adiposity or kind of excess fat in your abdominal cavity. So we know that excess waste typically on the, the outside, which is called subcutaneous fat, doesn't actually increase your risk a whole amount. It's that uh, fat in the abdominal cavity called visceral adiposity that actually is that engine of inflammation. So that's that's one of the, the key factors we see across all populations and why we see a big correlation with blood pressure and obesity. Okay, what about people who are thin on the outside and fat on the inside? Yeah, the the toffees, uh, thin on the outside and fat on the inside. And again, that's the same thing. We see this predominantly with Asian populations. And again, that's those uh, group of individuals who have a significant amount of fat in the visceral um, adiposity category, um, but don't have much subcutaneous fat. And those people can have very significant risk factors, diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, but for all intents and purposes can actually look... uh, like a normal weight. And again, we can get more precise with the measures that we use, um, typically measuring insulin levels or looking for measures of insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, for example. Um, but th- they're, they're the, the, the drivers, really, of, of all the cardiovascular risk, blood pressure being one. So you're saying there isn't certainty around what causes high blood pressure, but there is certainty around what high blood pressure leads you to in some cases. Exactly. Um, so the the first thing is is in terms of having high blood pressure significantly increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. And that's what makes it the biggest killer worldwide in terms of cardiovascular disease. The question that we get to then is, is what actually is high blood pressure and what is normal blood pressure? Um, 
Um, and those cutoffs are somewhat arbitrarily defined. Um, historically, we would have called it uh, greater than 140 on the, the top number, but now we're beginning to, to trend that number down. And even if we go back and look at the, the 1950s, I mean, President Roosevelt was going around with a blood pressure of 300 on 190. Um, and so Even our, I know our, our that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so talk us through what it should be and what those numbers mean. So when we say high blood pressure, typically people are referring to the, the top number being greater than 140. But when we say that that is high blood pressure, what that really means is that the evidence would suggest that treating it with a medication is likely to improve your outcomes in terms of heart attack and stroke. But the normal blood pressure cutoff then typically has been set at 120 being the top number. But we know that even above 90 for the top number, up to 120, there's an increase in risk. So it's, it's, it's not a significant increase. It's not a very, very large increase in risk between 90 and 120, but it is there. So as your blood pressure goes up, continuously there is an increase in risk. Um, and so it's, it's really trying to keep it as low as possible for as long as possible. So that's the top number, the number that you hear first. You want to see that less than 120, you're telling me. Well, I want to see it uh, in general, I think, speaking realistically within the societies that we live in, you know, in the 120s is 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 preferential. Lower than 120s would be ideal. Um, and that, that just seems like a very unattainable target for most people. But if we look at hunter-gatherer tribes, for up to age 60, average blood pressure is 112. And a gentle walk is just not going to cut it when it comes to preventing high blood pressure. But you're saying that we should be doing exercise that um, causes us to, to puff and pant, that puts pressure on us for 150 minutes a week. That's a, that's a lot because you're not happy with us going for a walk, I, I, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm a fan of activity in terms of walking, but we need to separate it from exercise. And we've very strong evidence that regular exercise, even trials looking at a, a three-month intervention, 120 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous activity can lower blood pressure significantly. Um, and we know that if we're doing that over a lifetime, the, the benefits are likely to be even more. We know that for every two pounds lost in weight, you drop one millimetre of mercury um, in terms of the, the top number. So there's, there's direct linear correlations between these particular activities. But I suppose more importantly, doing these things in the first place leads you to not having blood pressure in the first place mm-hmm. rather than using them as a, as a treatment. So you want people running, cycling, swimming... Those types of things? Exercise agnostic. What I'm looking for is you doing an activity that gets your heart rate up that you know that you're you're actually exercising. Um, Whatever that is, it doesn't really bother me as long as it doesn't uh, cause you injury. Um, And realistically, people don't need to get their heart rates up as high as they would actually think. So when you see those people out running and they look like they're going to explode, I I feel like stopping them saying, you're you're just doing it all wrong. You're doing it wrong. It doesn't have to be that hard. Okay. Are they harming themselves? Um, Possibly in terms of their, their form um, because they're tired and they're not being perfect in their form so they're likely to end up with a mechanical injury but probably not from a heart point of view. Okay, now let's talk about checking your blood pressure because many people will only have their blood pressure checked when they go to see someone like you or their, or their GP. You're saying... You need to be doing that yourself at home. We all should be doing it. I, I, this is this is my uh, take on this because if you look at the prevalence in terms of half the population over the age of forty five years of age have high blood pressure, um, and the reality is is when you have your blood pressure checked maybe once a year with your doctor, which is likely a very inaccurate data point because you're anxious, you're dealing with bad parking and bad coffee. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to get a proper blood yeah, pressure I have, reading. I have a listener here called Joseph who says that he has white coat syndrome, and when he goes in in a medical setting to have his blood pressure checked, it's sky. 
high when he has it checked in a non-medical setting when he's relaxed it's not high at all So this is I mean when we talk about white coat high blood pressure number one I suppose we don't wear white coats really anymore <laughs> but um, my, I, I say this in a tongue in cheek sense the number one cause of white coat high blood pressure is high blood pressure um, because often I hear this story of my blood pressure is only elevated when my doctor checks it and yeah. I ask them who else checks your blood pressure no one so the reality is is we need to we need to get better data points I think a, a data point taken in a, a, a doctor's office or something is a poor data point and so that's why I ask all of my patients to check their own blood pressures at home and you know it doesn't need to be difficult you can buy a blood pressure monitor particularly one that goes around your upper arm rather than your wrist for 20 or 30 euros so this is you know or, or borrow someone's or get it done in your chemists this is not uh, should be a barrier to getting your blood pressure checked Do you trust us though that we'll do it properly? Well, you have the most to lose and the most to gain. So the reality is, is that you actually checking it properly and, and with the reasonable instructions uh, should be adequate. So we have to, this is, this is going to be a trust-based uh, mm-hmm. relationship. Um, so, you know, you telling me that you have normal blood pressure and simply lying, you're, you're <laughs> going to end up worse off than I will. So how often do we check our blood pressure at home? So what I would say for, for, for most of my patients, I would say uh, four times a year. So once, uh, once a quarter uh, for 10 days in a row to check your blood pressures first thing in the morning. Take three measurements, discard the first one because the first one's always a red herring and then take the average of the second two. So I would ask my patients to do that on a regular basis. And then once you discover that you have high blood pressure, you need to take some action. And we've spoken about the exercise side of it, 150 minutes uh, uh, exerting yourself every week. Apart from that, the nutrition? So nutrition, again, always an important part of uh, managing obesity, but I suppose specifically within it, we're talking about salt. Um, and when we when we talk about salt, some people are more salt sensitive than others is something we've learned over the years. We know that in terms of uh, trials where you substitute uh, a salt for 100% what's called sodium salt to maybe about 25% potassium salt, using that over a, a five-year period can reduce your chances of dying by about 10%, which is a big, big deal. Um, but we want to avoid is processed foods and if you're going to add salt to your food you know if that's your necessary thing try and use a more kind of higher potassium based salt Dr Patty Barrett from Today with Claire Byrne And on Morning Ireland Mary Wilson was talking to Greg O'Dwyer Assistant Chief Fire Officer with Dublin Fire Brigade about fireworks and bonfires this Halloween weekend Dublin City Council workers removed over 500 tonnes of bonfire material last year and the council is asking for any stockpiles to be reported to them again this year. In collaboration with community groups around Dublin, the council is organising a programme of over 60 free family-friendly events this year. Greg O'Dwyer is the Assistant Chief Fire Officer, Dublin Fire Brigade. Greg, thank you for joining us this morning. Are these illegal bonfires that draw crowds a big worry for you over the weekend? now? Yes, they are. They always have been. Um, thankfully, as you just said there in, in your introduction, that uh, these are declining thanks to all the, the amazing work that the councils, the local authorities and the community groups uh, come together and organise. Um, and these they organise really, really good, um, controlled and full events for everybody. Mm. <clears throat> um, so we've we've seen a decline in the illegal bonfires over the years, um, but they still are there and they still are a big problem and they still are they're obviously illegal. They're very, very dangerous. Um, and, uh, you know, we just, we encourage all parents and young people to try and seek out these organised events in your local area and go to those and have a fun and a safe evening. As you say, there are fewer of them around, but they are still there. For people who do go out, what would you advise them to do? To, you know, to exercise well, caution? You know, if they insist on going. 
What do you say? Well, obviously I have to begin by saying it's illegal. try and stay away from them. Yeah, yeah they are illegal and they're, they're extremely dangerous. Um, you know, if, if you must go near one, you stay stay well, well away mm-hmm. from them. Um, problem is people can, um, you know, throw uh, different projectiles onto the uh, bonfire, such as aerosols and those kind of things and fireworks. And they can, can come out uh, very erratically and violently and uh, strike people. And we've seen some, you know, horrific injuries mm-hmm. over the years. Uh, and that brings um, me on to the, the fireworks as well. Am I right in thinking we're, we're hearing uh, less fireworks this year? I think so. Yeah, from from people on the ground and you know my own experience as well. I think there's there are less of them around this year. Again, because of the organised events, um, I think people are, are realising that there is no need for them. They they can go and uh, you know see organised events and, and have other entertainment. Um, and whether whether they're more difficult to get this year or not, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, but but all kind of fireworks that you see coming in, uh, they are illegal and the, the more you know more so that they are actually dangerous because you can't stand over them and you don't know about the quality how they've been made the length of fuse on them and so on and we've seen them going off in people's pockets and um, <clears throat> without without ignition just but just by moving around going off in, in young people's pockets and obviously going off in people's hands uh you know the fuse is just too short and exploding in people's fingers and people losing fingers and disfigured hands and so on and you've seen all of that down the years greg uh, but for you and your colleagues this isn't just one night is it this will continue now i suppose tonight tomorrow right into the weekend Yes, particularly this year because it's falling on the, the bank holiday and we have the whole weekend of it. Um, so we, we will see, um, you know, we've seen it already, um, some smaller fires um, and some antisocial behaviour uh, has started in certain areas and it will it, it will continue over the weekend. But as I say, it really, you know, the last number of years we have seen a decline in, in the, uh, the bonfires uh, and we encourage, as you said there, mm. that there are, and it's not too late, uh, anybody that sees a stockpile of bonfire material, your local authorities get onto their websites see the number and call it and they will come and they'll take that material away uh, just redu- reducing bonfires uh, as a whole or even or making them smaller at least mm. Greg O'Dwyer from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson And in the morning Brendan Courtney had been talking to the grandnephew of Bram Stoker so he's keeping with the Halloween theme when he caught up with Susan Kirwan about running a battery I run a bat hospital a so BAT, BAT, BAT hospital with wings. Yeah, with wings. So. Okay, great. Well, first of all, let's start at the beginning. How many bats are you looking after right now? Right now, we have thirty-six bats. Okay. So we're 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 on the quieter side. This uh, year, we've had almost four hundred bats through the doors. <laughs> I just had an image of a bat leaving on a crutch through the door. Yeah. <laughs> cute. Okay, how do bats end up in your care? How do they? Why do they need rehabilitating? Bats come in for, there's a number of reasons. We get them coming in for, they might have been attacked by a cat or predated on by another type of animal. Um, Unfortunately, we get them with, that they've been stuck to things like flypaper. They might have been clipped by a car at night. And sometimes they're trapped inside. So they've been trapped inside somebody's shed or in their house and they're quite dehydrated. So they come in for a few different reasons. So they're very curious little creatures, aren't they? And they're quite social, which I was surprised to read. Bats are so social. They rely on each other and they have really, um, they're really connected within the family, the groups, especially the maternity groups. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Ireland, we can have maternity groups where these are where the mothers go to have their pups. They can be a couple of hundred, maybe three, four hundred bats. Mm-hmm. But 
in places like Texas, like Bracken Cave, they have 15 million Mexican free tail bats that go there every year. Now, whether it's two to 300 or 15 million, each night when the mothers leave to go out and forage for food, their pups are left there. And like all mammals, they're really curious and they're climbing around each other and playing around. But when the mothers come back each night, they recognize their baby by its call and the baby recognizes its mother. Oh. So within those, that, that group or maternity group, they'll be able to find their baby. So they're so social and they're really connected. It's amazing. And, and so, but, but that's how they can venture and they can get lost because sometimes they can mishear the call. Is that right? Well, no. So they do get lost. Babies are very curious. So the pups are very curious and sometimes they'll venture outside of the roost. And if one decides to venture off, it lets out a little alarm call and the rest of them come to see what it's doing. The rest and of the, the adults, basically. Yeah. Oh. And the babies. Babies will come as well. They'll, takes they'll a village, takes a village. Exactly. So this, this year, actually, we got a call from a bank in Bellarney where something similar had happened. They rang to say that they had, over two days, they'd found 94 bat pups. <laughs> that one little one had crawled out, got down through the attic space into the, into the bank, and then the rest being curious. Kenny. So y- your voice is so kind and caring and you're describing this like they're little cute baby. They really but are. Are they? They Oh my God. Come on now. Are they? Susan? Honestly. honestly 94 now, bad listen, pups. I'd be uh, terrified. I know. And it's so natural. I mean, you, just listening to, to um, your guest that like, was on before and yes. the relation to vampires and the fast the, the the type of flight they have is erratic, you know. But That's it. They are definitely, they're so beautiful. When you when you look at a bat, that's part of my job. So I care for the individual bats when they come in. I nurse them back to health. But I try to educate people and show them actually what the bat looks like. Yes. And they are adorable. They really are adorable. They're more, their face is more dog-like. So oh. they have a muzzle. And honestly, if you get to see them. Yes. Do they, know, when you're caring for them, uh, do they recognise you? No, they do. well, they'll recognise me as in when they come in, they'll know that it's food time. And, okay. But they don't do um, what other mammals would, and that's the imprint. So they don't become attached to me or to humans, which is great. It makes my job a lot easier. Okay, so what kind of care do you find that you're giving them? Well, initially when they come in, they need to be checked by vets. So okay. we get them off to the vet, they'll have to have an x-ray. Their bones are extremely delicate. Um, and, and unfortunately... A lot of these breaks to their bones means that they won't be able to fly. So oh. it can it can end up badly, you know, for the for the bat. So we need to check them out. So we'll get them in X-rays. If they've been injured by a cat, they always need to have a course of antibiotics just to rule out that the septus will will set in there. Yeah. Um, and then we're doing things like cleaning wounds, and you know, you're making sure that their that their membrane on their wings doesn't dry out, which is very important. So it's, it's, you know, it's an all day thing. So, them back so in, in your local area, because you, you really care and I'm going to ask you how you got into it now, but are you known as the Bat Lady? Yes, I am. <laughs> That's kind of so. cool, isn't it? So Susan told Brendan what brought her into the wonderful world of bats. Well, my, my, my love of bats really started um, going back 15 years ago and I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. I was really young I, I, to have been diagnosed at 27. Oh, well, I'm sorry. And um, as you can imagine, it's just a horrendous time, mm-hmm. you know, to be, especially because I had two very young kids and I was a single parent. So you're busy all day. Nightmare. You know, school runs, everything, work. And then evening time, you're basically with your own thoughts. So 
I spent a lot of time just sitting outside, get out of the house, sit out in the backyard. And, and I noticed that my neighbour had this really large bat roost. Now, I'd known that there were bats around the area, but see all these bats coming out at night. And I just was, as as an animal lover all of my life, this was just great. And I, it was helping me to switch off. I was just forgetting about my problems, which was impossible to do, and watching these bats. So I looked forward to it every night. Right. And so the bats I, were bringing you into the present moment and keeping you there and so helping you relax, really. Exactly. They were really, you know, in this dark time, just bringing this light into my life where I was, you know, going back to being a child again. Oh, you know, how can I learn more about these? And let's get a bat detector and have a listen in and see, can, we, can I find which species they are? It just gave me a new focus um, in the evening, that time that was really difficult for me. So as I started to get better and thankfully went into recovery, it was just a love that I had there. And then, you know, coming into, I was always taking in animals and I would nurse a couple of bats here and there and then uh, COVID hit. And it was just like bats and villainizing bats and this is happening. And I just at that time felt like this is the time to push out there into the media, into the public. Yes that bats are, you know, the benefits of bats. Well, listen, be very quickly, because we're going to run out of time. And this is, you have done it. You've nailed it. I now love bats. But let's bust a quick, a couple of myths. Do they fly into your hair? No, they use echolocation so they can map their world around them. They don't want to be in your hair. And are, are there any other things people should know about bats? That you should um, appreciate what they do. They, they're all the ecosystem services. And the worst thing that could happen to us is if they disappear. So that's what should scare you the most about bats. Because they're very ecologically important in the they big are, circle of things. They are just vital. Research it. Tell your friends. That's the best thing you can do to help bats. Susan Kerwin talking to Brendan Courtney in the morning. And on today with Claire Byrne, ever fancied winning a Nobel Prize? Well, Dr. Shane Bergen was talking about the recipients of prizes past and this year's Nobel Prize winners. Have you ever met one of these Nobel Prize winners? I have. Um, A couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to represent Ireland at a meeting in Lindau in in Munich or near Munich in Germany. And uh, all of the living physics Nobel laureates were there. And they had the opportunity to meet or we had the opportunity, all the young people to meet them. Mm -hmm. And so we heard about these like great inventions and great work that they did. They were a really odd bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Clatter of them, you met. (laughs) Absolutely. And that would be the best collective noun for them. Like when it comes to their expertise in science, it's unparalleled, right? But when they start to kind of talk about other things, that's where the wheels start to fall off the wagon. Are you saying they were socially awkward? You could say that, Claire. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But like, you know, part of they all gave a speech about their work. And part of it was, what would I say to a young scientist about winning the Nobel Prize? In other words, how would you do it? Yes. And every one of them gave advice and all of the advice uh, contradicted the one that came before. So like some were like, you have to work really hard. And others were like, oh, you know, it's a bit of luck. And others were saying things like random stuff comes in and, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. And it's, 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 it's all a bit of chance. So they but they completely ignored the fact that what they were all saying contradicted one another. Yeah. But they were, you know what, is at the end of the day. Is that not what science and physics is about, though? Oh, you that nobody <laughs> agrees and everybody has to prove their theory and all
almost all guys were very, very interesting to meet, really interesting. Um, some of them had received their Nobel Prizes pretty early on in their careers. And so they spent like, what do you do after winning a Nobel Prize if you're a scientist? I'm not sure. What do you what do you do? Well, a lot of them would start writing books and they kind of go on the on the lecture circuit. Some go back and go back into the lab and kind of pretend like nothing has has happened. And there are a couple of people that have won Two, and that includes somebody this year who won a Nobel Prize the second time in chemistry. Okay, well, let's go through them now and chat about the 2022 winners, and we'll start with physics. Yeah, my favourite. Um, so this was given for work, um, a phenomenon that Einstein described as spooky action at a distance. And it is Perfect d- for this time of year. Absolutely. And it's all to do with, with Hall- uh, not with Halloween, with quantum mechanics. <laughs> I wish it were to do with Halloween. And so the trio that won spent their careers working on quantum mechanics. And the prize was specifically giving, and I'll give the quote, for experiments with entangled photons, that's bits of light, establishing the violation of ben- Bell in inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. Now, why would I read that complex thing? I have thing no out? idea. <laughs> I cite this because there's an Irish connection, namely a physicist called John Bell, a Belfast man. And so their work was to do a quantum entanglement, which in a nutshell means the properties of one particle, that's like a bit of, of like a, a piece of light or something, can be deduced by examining the properties of a second one. So this is where you have two things. Imagine I had a black ball and a white ball and I, I gave them to you, right? And um, you look at one and say, that's black, therefore the other one has to be white. But on, in, in, in the quantum mechanics world, until you look at them, they're both black and white. So they're effectively both grey. And the act of looking at one will instantly make the other one go the opposite colour. Ah, and it doesn't matter. with my head. Absolutely. It doesn't matter how far a distance you have between these two items. If I had a black ball, or if, I, I, if we had these balls and then we, we weren't to look at them, we were to separate them, right? I go to America, you stay here in Ireland. And I look at mine then in America, yours will instantly change to a colour. And that's that's quantum entanglement. And Einstein was completely uh, bamboozled by it. Like mm-hmm. One of the greatest minds, he said, God doesn't play, um, doesn't uh, play with dice. In other words, he doesn't leave things to chance. And so the, the Irish physicist Bell, he proposed um, experiments that you could do to test whether there was some sort of information that was built into these particles that would explain this spooky action at a distance. And then the Nobel Prize winners this year went and did those experiments with pieces of light. And they t- it turned out there was no secret information. It is spooky action at a distance. It's entirely as predicted by quantum mechanics. And so I would say that if John Bell had been alive when um, in 2022, unfortunately, he's long dead, he would have received the Nobel Prize in physics this year. There's absolutely no doubt Very about likely. it. Yes. Now, that is absolutely fascinating. Spooky action at a distance. Then Shane moved on to Click chemistry. It's like Lego bricks in chemistry. Perfect. So <laughs> here we go. And it's it's awarded again to three people, one of whom is, is a woman. I stress that because it is unusual in Nobel Prizes. So, so much in chemistry is about getting atoms and molecules to stick together, right? So you put them together and you see what they'll do. Will they react? And the larger uh, the molecule becomes, the more difficult it can be to control that chemistry. And so you can have unpredicted consequences. Uh, And so... 
this year's Nobel Prize in chemistry was given uh, to somebody who did click chemistry, which I said is like Lego chemistry. So they were able to add on little buckles or bits onto complex molecules so that when they found, found a friend, they were able to instantly click. Um, and so that meant that you could have far more efficient and controllable reactions. So let me translate that into something that people might uh, find kind of real. So if you think about when you have to take a cancer drug, right, it goes into your body and it, it effectively ha- it goes everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there can be all these sort of, um, you know, nasty consequences to taking cancer drugs when really what the doctor wants to happen is for the drug to get to the to the cancer bit and just interact with the cancer cell and kill it. So using click chemistry, you can do that and they're, they're working on it right now. So effectively, you put a special Lego brick on the cancer drug, another receiving Lego brick on the cancer cell. And then when the, uh, when these things find each other in the body, they'll click together and the chemistry can happen. So the drug is more effective. And I wonder, can that also mitigate against uh, side effects? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to have all these drastic uh, side effects that we, we see when people have to go through these treatments and doctors have to decide whether the, you know, the medicine is, 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 is worse basically yes. than the, the illness you have. So now I know how to answer that question almost. You know, the one that children ask you, how does the medicine know where my pain is? <laughs> it doesn't a lot of the time. So it just goes into the body and has yeah. to just kind of go everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, so the prizes this year, I remember I mentioned that sometimes people get two. So Barry Sharpless, who's uh, one of the Nobel uh, recipients for chemistry this year, is one of only a few people that's received two Nobel prizes. And he got them both in chemistry. And the other thing here is Carolyn um, Berenzotti, who is uh, one of of only eight women since 1901 to receive the Nobel Prize in in chemistry. And remarkably, only four women have received the prize in physics. Extraordinary. It it really is. It's it's indefensible at this stage. Yeah. Um, Now, we're going to move to medicine finally and to a prize given for ancient DNA. Absolutely. You know, um, and what I love about this work is that they were able to sequence the genome of a Neanderthal, which is an ancient extinct species of human, not that long after we did it first for the human. Right. So we only did that in the late 90s. Remember the big announcement from the White House of, with Tony Blair and, and Bill Clinton? It was seen as the dawn of a new era. And here was a, a scientist who was working um, at the same time to look at ancient DNA. And his discoveries had implications for modern medicine because we see chunks of Neanderthal and another species, Denisovan DNA, that are peppered throughout the human genome. And um, it allows us to understand where we come from and allows us to understand the uniqueness of the homo sapien. Dr Shane Bergen from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily so enjoy the Halloween weekend and I'll talk to you soon.